Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Let's start with Josh, who says, as the IPL owners, global franchises take more control, will it ultimately be bad for the BCCI? Yeah, I think think there's certainly, as long as the BCCI own the biggest league, they're always going to have a huge amount of power uh, within cricket. But as the global, uh, let's say, I don't know, Major League Cricket or the 100 or even the Big Bash gets bigger, whatever other league, some random, I don't know, the Japanese Premier League, uh, which a very drunken Matt Pryor and I at 3 a.m. once um, planned for uh, the Japanese uh, Premier League. Um, I think at that stage, there's certainly, um, that that might be a slightly different one. But to be honest, I don't think any of these things are uh, hugely going to be concerning to the BCCI. But as a general rule, I do think that the boards have taken away their own power by the way that they've set up some of these things. And because of that, then there will be consequences uh, further down the line. And the the BCCI isn't uh, immune from that, I don't think. But, you know, looking after the biggest league certainly makes them the, you know, the most uh, strong position. I'm not particularly worried about their health going ahead. Aditya says, in the Jadeja Asia MVP video, you talked about players like Cook and Andy Flower, who have legitimate claims to be an all-time 11 uh, to play in Asia. Uh, can you think of any players apart from Bradman in England who could walk into all-time 11s to play in away countries? Well, away countries is slightly different. I think if you do away conditions, there's probably um, players that would be quite interesting um, on, on that. I, I mean, I, I'm sure that there are some players who, you know, their conditions translate, but it also depends on, like it's hard to do it in one country because you have to play that country a lot um, in your career. And that can depend on many different things that have nothing to do with you. I haven't looked at the numbers, but when I read this just now, my first thought was um, Kirtley Ambrose in Australia was one that just sort of came to me. Uh, you've got Warner McGrath in England, uh, which is interesting. Obviously, New Zealand, I think I've got a feeling Wally Hammond in New Zealand might be an interesting one um, off the top of my head. Are there any other types? players yeah i mean i don't think alistair cook gets into an all-time asian 11 it'd be interesting to have a look at his numbers in specific countries to see if he's outperformed some of the local openers there um 
and Andy Flower certainly isn't getting in ahead of Kumar Sangakkara, but again, had very good numbers, uh, probably from limited opportunities, although I'd have to go back and have a look. Um, and that's the big problem. Um, you know, Ian Botham has fantastic record in Asia, but I think he has like 25 or 30 wickets, right? Like he just, just didn't bowl there that often um, and didn't play there that often. So um, that's the trickier one. I would assume that early days, Australia, England and England, Australia, there's a few in either direction um, that uh, might go out there. Also, if you're looking for, actually, I'm trying to remember what Aubrey Faulkner's batting record is like in England. I don't think it's particularly good, actually. But I'm pretty sure he took a couple of bags of wickets when he played them. But it was probably, again, he played one series, I think. Did he play two series? I think he only played one series in England and then played a second test um, after the World War when he was completely finished as a player. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting question, other. Thanks for that one. Andrew says, two-parter <laughs> about Les Ames. Oh, what the actual fuck was Les Ames? Uh, well, let's start with Les Ames. So... I was uh, talking to Cheyenne actually recently, who's obviously, you know, started working with us and he's a lot younger and I don't think he knew, I think maybe he knew the name Les Ames, but didn't understand the full impact. And so I sent him all the wiki keepers before World War II that had made 500 runs. There weren't even that many that made 500 runs because a lot of wiki keepers batted at number 11 and even the ones who batted further up the order, they were not in any way decent batters. And I think there's one, and I forgot his name, is it Jock from... I say Jock Richards, but I don't think it is Jock Richards, but Jock someone, Jock Campbell, who played for South Africa, who averaged 30. Les Ames obviously averages 42, 43, 44. And no other we I think, averages over 20. Uh, before World War II. So we were literally picking specialist wicketkeepers again and again, and then suddenly we made this uh, big change. But Les Ames is before all that. So his record is just absolutely um, incredible. And the other thing about Les Ames is that it didn't really make people think, oh, okay, what we should do is pass the gloves on to batters um, who, who maybe show a little bit of wicket-keeping skill. We just went, well, Les Ames is a freak and no one will ever be able to do that again. That's a very different thing that what sorts what starts to happen around the 80s and 90s um, uh, where we, we make a conscious effort. You know, England in the 1960s and again in the 1980s make two conscious efforts of literally giving the gloves to people who can bat a little bit better at, in different formats as well. And then, of course, that starts to become a bigger thing. Alex Stewart um, and Jack Russell, uh, which I will do a video on one day because really it's a fascinating um, uh, point in cricket. And Adam Gilchrist gets the the um, uh, the respect. But if you look at the averages, wicketkeeping averages are going up way before Adam Gilchrist came along. If anything, he changes the strike rates of wicketkeepers, which is uh, re a remarkable thing. So the second part of your question, Andrew, is about um, Adam Gilchrist. Who's, and, and you talk about how he laid a bl blueprint. He really doesn't because we already had um, Alex Stewart, Andy Flower, Jeffrey Dujon was picked for his batting. I'm trying to think of someone else as well, uh, another player in that period. So we already had a change within cricket, especially outside of Asia, where you don't have to stand up to the stumps as much. There was the bigger change was really outside of Asia at that point, where you were trying to find someone who literally just had to take the, the Knicks as they came to them around, you know, knee to neck height. Um, and we... Even then, everyone knew there was a payoff, but there was obviously no fielding ana analytics or anything back then. There's not really now, uh, certainly of that level. Um, so even Adam Gilchrist doesn't have the effect. The real effect is that people start to work it out. There are Ames isn't the only one, by the way. Um, Walcott is another really, really interesting one. 
um, who he stops wicket-keeping. Like Gilchrist, he was quite tall for a wicket-keeper and he started to hurt his back. Uh, he was averaging over 40 with the bat as well when he was wicket-keeping. trying to remember what it is. And he ba- he becomes a much better batter after he gives up the gloves. But there's actually a period in the middle where his batting is roughly the same when he was wicket-keeping when he wasn't wicket-keeping. His big pickup is at the end when he really works out his game. Um, but he was a fantastic cricketer. But again, there was no big boom. There were just lots of little booms. As I said, I think it was Jim Parks in the 1960s who was picked for England uh, as a guy who'd barely ever wicket-kept in his life and had become a wicket-keeper very, very late. Certainly was a very good batter. I think he might have played as a specialist batter. So this is well before Gilchrist. So teams are already thinking about it. They're already trying to work it out. But there was still a, th- a thought, you know, that the best gloveman mattered. And then you have guys like Ames and Alan Knott, who were fantastic wicket keepers who could bat. That seems to be a very, very rare thing up until really, I suppose, sort of the MS Dhoni. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else I'm missing. Um, it was absolutely fantastic first-rate wicket keeper and um, a very good bat. And even Emma Stoney, he still doesn't always quite move like a wicket keeper, especially when he was standing back. So yeah, it's, uh, it was a gradual thing. So Gilchrist and Ames, neither of them had a big effect. The, the, the big, the effect that Gilchrist has is really on thinking if you can put someone at number seven, instead of, I think up until that point, what, what you might get a wicket keeper who could bat, but you were just looking at someone who would be a normal batter. At that point, what happens, Andrew, is they go, well, we can attack at number seven. Like the old time, that's that's what, you know, Ian Botham, Kapil Dev, those sorts of all-rounders, you know, Leary Constantine, all those sorts of players, they would be the attacking option at number seven. Um, and because of that, you know, uh, there was a chance to sort of go back to that, even though there were now fewer all-rounders in the world. And Gilchrist certainly don't uh, change cricket from that perspective, but he didn't change cricket from the point of view that people were looking for people who could bat because there's, you know, um, lots of cricketers um, in the 80s and 90s are already starting to get to that. You know, wicket-keeping batting averages was just going up and up and up and up. Manon says, your top three favourite cricket shots. I love the reverse sweep, partly because it's a disruptor, right? So you're not making, you're not playing the shot based on the what the ball is doing because you're making that decision beforehand. You're making it based on the fielding uh, positions and then you're trying to do that that's for me uh certainly one of the best shots in in cricket i love the hook shot specifically the hook more than the pull i love playing it when i was a cricketer as well um I, I certainly think that is is there's something to that particular shot that i think is absolutely brilliant and my third one's a bit weird because it doesn't happen very often but i love a back foot straight drive whether it be mid off mid on or dead straight um, there's some, you know, the back foot cover drive is obviously a very elegant shot, but I don't know there's a sense of that's a little bit easier, but the ability to get on top of the ball and punch it back straight. It's, it's why I did the video on Virat Kohli's shot to, you know, uh, other than the fact it was a great shot. It was like, finally, I get a chance to do this. I, I once did this on Shy Hope. I'm probably, man, I'm going to be doing something fairly soon, um, on shots. Uh, some of my favorite shots. I did a piece for Crick Info 2019, where I basically looked at, you know, all the players in the world and who had the best shot for each, um, you know, shot type. And now I'm like, oh, I could probably just make a video on that and update it. It's a really, really fascinating thing uh, to have a look at different players um, and who has the best shot in those different ways. But I think those are my three favorite. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anything. No, I think that's it. Satchmo says, who is the best test men's fast bowler of the 1980s? 
That's Guru gives us averages. Umar Khan, 19.12. Richard Hadley, 19.28. Marshall, 19.91. Uh, but Marshall had a better strike rate. Um, yeah, I wonder what Joel Garner's bowling average was in that period as well. And he did his from first change. My guess is his is pretty low. I mean, had, Imran, I would assume towards the back end of his career, is probably almost more of a batting all-rounder. Although whether that comes by 90, by the late 90s or not, I don't know. Richard Hadley's incredible because it's, you know, so much of a one-man show. You know, we, we've had, what, three players like him, you know, Murali and Fazal Mahmood, who basically did everything they had to do on their own, which is just incredible. Marshall maybe had the most skills of those three in that he was brilliant with the new ball. He was brilliant with the old ball. He could swing it in both directions. He could seem it, and he had a killer bouncer. I think Hadley's not more one-dimensional so you probably prefer if you're if you're picking someone purely for bowling and of course Hadley and Imran were better bats than Marshall but if you're picking someone purely for bowling I would have thought that Marshall is the one that you would want there Hadley gives you more overs would be my guess per game um Imran obviously his batting is far superior but I would have thought that some of his good bowling average towards the end of the 80s is probably because he's also Treating, you know, he's got other great bowlers around him by that point, and he, you know, bowls when it suits him. That's not having a go at him. I mean, he was quite old at that point. He probably had to look after himself, but I wouldn't have thought he was quite at that other level. Early 80s Imran, you know, when he first masters reverse swing, is probably unplayable because you've got a combination of athleticism, pace, skill, brains, and everything. But yeah, I think if we're just going bowling, I would go Malcolm Marshall over those over the other two. Um, but you know, that's based on your question. Now, I could delve into that one for about seventeen hours. Bloody Bugger says you've mentioned Shane Warne pre-shoulder injury was more of a mechanically skilled, yeah, able to bowl a flipper and a wrong one, uh, but post-injury was more intelligent and strategic. Can some uh, can something similar be said of Tendulkar pre and post tennis elbow injury? No, I think. I think there's, you know, yes, the, the elbow injury probably changes Tendulkar, but I think batters generally stick to a very sort of similar plan. Um, there, there are changes, but you don't get the same sorts of things that you see in bowlers. So what Warren did is very similar to what you see with hundreds of seam bowlers, right, where they come in and they're quite fast, and that's why they originally get picked, and then they add skills. You know, Dennis Ali is sort of the poster boy for that sort of player. Comes in, he's fast and raw. By the end, he's one of the most skillful bowlers in the world and doesn't need to be as fast anymore. Shane Warne did the spinner's version of that. Bat- batters do do that. I would say that what Tendulka probably did is probably more similar to what you have seen of a lot of professional batters where they just pair back their game. And I don't think that's as much tennis elbow injury as it just is. Um, you know, when you're young, you hit everything on the up and you, you know, hit the ball in the air a little bit more and you play more shots. You know, it's... If you watch Steve Warbatter in the 80s and you watch Steve Warbatter in the late 90s, it doesn't look like the same species of batter. The, the basic physical movements are all there. His athleticism has changed a little bit because of the hamstrings and everything else. But he still kind of looks like Steve War. But that young one was a very dashing player. He played the hook shot. He attacked a lot more. Whereas that older Steve Waugh becomes, you know, just an incredible brick wall in that middle order, um, who then, when he gets a ball in his area, throws everything at it. And I think that's a very, very different player to Young. And and I think we see that a lot with batters. I would have thought that Tenduka would have been more like that. It'd be interesting to talk to him if he had to change his grip or anything, though. 
um, or if there was any, you know, technical changes. But I don't think it's the same as Warren, where he physically couldn't do what he had done before. And so his body was changing. That's a very, very common thing with bowlers. It does happen with batters. I'm trying to think. There's someone I'm missing here. There was someone who was a very good puller and hooker, and I was chatting to them once about this. And they said once they got their back injury, they just had to play short bowling completely different. And that actually affected their entire game. So it does happen with batters. But And the other thing you would see is there are players who are very quick on their feet against spinners when they were younger. It's very hard to do that as you get older. Um, you know, Players like Pajara and Michael Clark are very rare that they stay very quick and nimble on their feet all the way through their career. I'm not sure if there is a hairier sport than cricket. From the early greats WG Grace and the demon Fred Spothers onwards, cricket has always been Hasut, Boom, Gooch and Dev with their upper lip work. Shoab and Imran's incredible manes. Not to mention Lily's incredible chest rug. Our sport loves curated hair. And so does Manscaped. They just look after the bit that you can't see. So if you want a cricket-inspired downstairs pubic mustache, we can think of no item better than the Lawnmower 4.0 from Manscaped. Whether you're steaming in from the ladies' end or mounting a strenuous rear guard, always put your trust in Manscaped who will look after your lower order. So go to manscaped.com and buy their kit with my red inker code, all one word, and get yourself 20% off and make yourself 20% sexier. Cameron says, have you seen baseball's new pitch clock and thoughts on a similar system in cricket? Look, I've been thinking about doing a video on this. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, in fact, I just listened, I just finished listening to Jeff Parson. Is it Jeff Parson? Oh God, I've forgotten his name. The uh, ESPN baseball writer who was on um, Pablo Torre's um, last episode of ESPN Daily. And it's a really, really interesting thing because, you know, it's something that's been mentioned a lot in cricket more by fans than by anyone in the game. Um, and so I wanted to compare the two things. The biggest difference was that baseball was crashing around the world, whereas, you know, especially with T20 cricket, you would say that cricket's probably more watched, more popular than it's ever been around the world. Um, and the pitch clock's really interesting because it does something else, because it actually also penalises the batter, which I find really, really fascinating. Um, because, you know, we still blame bowlers and, and fielding teams, and the batters are very much to blame for the modern overrates as much as anything else um so from what i've seen in baseball it works very well um so far and it will probably improve it as a spectator sport i'd say where we are in cricket is you know you've got two everywhere's different it would not surprise me in cricket if there was a t20 tournament perhaps something like the 100 where we have a pitch clock and we already have a version of it, of course, with the fielder um, over the course of the game, uh, you know, uh, a fielder um, coming into the circle if you've taken too long. But then you'll see places like the IPL are just like, well, we get an extra hour of people watching our game. Why would we not want that? You know, until until it gets to the point where fans start to complain about the length of the game and then maybe things will change from there. Um, but yes, I do think we will see a version of this. And I suppose you could say we already have a version of it in cricket already. Ian says, do you think actual substitutions in franchise cricket could bring about the rise of the specialist fielder? If we get to it properly, Ian, yes, 100%. I think if we ever get to the point where you can have 15 players in your team, you might have a player who is, uh, you know, the ninth or 10th best batter who can bat, right? But maybe their skill is running between the wickets and fielding. Uh Sachin Baby was someone who, in some ways, was picked for um, Bangalore back in the day because, you know, they need, obviously they thought he was a talented player, but they really thought about him as someone who was very good at getting the strike back to their great hitters. Um, so we've already seen in 11s teams do that. Uh, obviously, if you go back to, you know, the 1960s, uh, Gloucestershire had one of the great specialist fielders of all time. Um, so we, 
these things have happened before, and I do think if we have substitutions, we'll see that coming back. Dre says, uh, do you think it's a little embarrassing for the ECB seeing the 100 draft top out at around 31000 for the women when we saw multiple women get six-figure deals um, in the WPL? Is it time to bump up the draft money? I mean, yes, obviously that is no one's going to argue with you there. Um, you know, they're, they're getting, they're getting to a point where they're paying more, but you know, compared to the WPL, but the WPL was sold for what the second or third most uh, money than any women's league has ever been sold for, for TV rights. We're not really talking like for light with a women's hundred. So that, you know, and the BCCI, the BCCI could pay the women exactly the same amount as the men tomorrow. Right. Um, you know, the, the cash that they have available to them. That was my argument back in 2017, 2018, when they weren't making a league and they, talk, they were talking all this nonsense about, oh, you know, the cricket's not strong enough, we might not make any money. So you don't need to make any money for five years off this. And eventually you'll make a ton of money off this if you just do it properly. You know, and that, so from that perspective, um, you know, you could argue that the WPL women are probably still underpaid, um, especially with what a success the league seems to have been this year. So, yeah, it's not ideal, but... I'm not sure that embarrasses the 100 any more than the fact that, you know, the IPL men um, get paid a lot more than the um, 100 men do as well. There's just more money in those leagues. Andrew says, um, <laughs> he's, uh, she's saying he's just signed up to Patreon. Um, I think his other question was a double header too. It's like he's had three questions. Um, as a chap who grew up in Australia, uh, is there much of a reverence for the 1948 Invincibles as a team? Uh, or just a monopoly for that Bradman bloke. No, the uh, 48 Invincibles are huge in Australian cricket culture. I think Bradman, as a ca for casual fans, probably gets a bigger thing. But, you know, anytime the Australia has a great sporting team in anything, you know, the Invincibles is brought out. And it's a very interesting thing, the Invincibles, because it was a, it was a brilliant cricket team. And I don't want to downplay this cricket team at all because it was absolutely fantastic. But... It was a one-off. There was also, I think if I'm remembering right, they changed the new ball regulations that summer to a new ball every 55 overs. And one team had Keith Miller and Ray Linmore. <laughs> Probably not the best time to, to change that. So, you know, there was certainly an element of, you know, right place, right time. In, a lot of England had lost, a, like Australia had lost some great players in the war, obviously, as well, no doubt. But England had been decimated more, um, you know, in England, in a way that Australia wasn't. Uh, so it makes sense that Australia was better. It's a bit like the, the South African series in the late 60s, the two series that they win against Australia. You can look at those teams and go, these are really good, really good teams, but they're not completely tested. Um, it is more of, a, at least in that case, a two-off um, series, um, but they were both at home. The 48, I suppose, is at least away, but there are certainly caveats there. But no, the Invincibles are still, I mean, that term is, probably taught to young Australian cricket fans at a very, very early age. Um, it was a fantastic team. It really is. I'm, I'll probably go back and do a series on at one stage because really some of the players in that team, absolutely incredible. I'm not sure what the weakness of that team was. Um, they, you know, it, it really was so deep and you had, you had older players who were still very much playing up to their prime and you had younger players who were yet to even explode, um, you know, like Harvey and, and Miller, um, and what incredible cricketers they were. It's just packed on every side. Um, uh, so yes, yeah, certainly it's still mentioned a lot in Australian cricket. Probably if anything down, downgraded, it isn't Bradman. It's probably more that Australia then from the, you know, 95 onwards had other great teams like the men's team and then the women's team. Um, and they did it. I've done it over long periods of time. Uh, 
Christopher says, after Izzy Wong got three wickets with full tosses, and I think she had five of her eight wickets with full tosses in the WPL, are full tosses a high success rate in women's cricket than men's? Christopher, I've, that's a brilliant question. I don't think so. I know that there is still this belief, and you still hear commentators say it sometimes. Uh, you know, a low full toss is as good as a, um, as a, you know, as good as a Yorker, and it's like it really isn't. <laughs> it used to be before um, people started using Asian style bats with thicker tails and ramps started coming, and and people started being able to pick a ball up from low and hit it back over your head for six. I've never seen anything in women's cricket that suggests that full tosses are more successful. It might be something I'm on a hypercost asked a question today. So he might be around. He might be able to answer it in the chat of YouTube. I'll have a look at it. I would doubt it. You, generally, it's not the case. Generally, full tosses are bad across cricket. We, they do get wickets, but the, they go for such a ridiculously high, um, runs per over that you would never do it as an intentional thing. Um, you know, as a leg spinner, it's a good ball. <laughs> Andrew, oh, he's, and Andrew's all over it. When did the term test cricket come around? If it was after 1877, what was uh, the other multi-day stuff called beforehand? That was well before 1877, in fact. I would have to go back and have a look at my notes, but my memory is this when we need someone like Abhishek or one of the MCC librarians from Melbourne or um, uh, London uh, to help us out. But my memory is that by 1950s, it's a pretty... 1950s. By the 1850s, test cricket is a pretty common phrase. And if you're playing a series with a couple of good players or playing a game with a couple of good players in it, you're pretty likely to use the word test at that point. It was a very, very common phrase that was used a lot. For those who don't know, though, the actual, te the actual tests themselves only became tests um, after the fact. So what happened was that Lots of games were, were, were played and were called tests. And then a, a journalist in South Australia literally went through all the games that he thought were of test quality and decided which one was a test and which one wasn't. He was just a random journalist and his list ended up becoming canon, probably because no one else had ever just gone through and done the research before. It, it's one of the most incredible things that ever happened. And so a lot of tests were called tests afterwards. That continues through to... Well, Australia playing um, New Zealand, that was a test that was decided that it was a test afterwards. I think even into the 1950s, perhaps, we still had situations where games were played and they were played like they were test matches, but they weren't necessarily test matches. And afterwards, people looked at it and went, that's a pretty strong team from both sides. Let's call that a test match. So it's a very, very different situation from what you see today. Gary says, do players who enter international cricket very young tend to decline earlier like we see in football? Despite only being 32, Paul Sterling looks to be on a pretty serious decline, having peaked from 2019 to 2021. Um, no, it's not like football. Fast bowlers is probably the only thing. Fast bowlers is an athletic-based pursuit, right? You know, fast twitch muscle fibers. It does, doesn't say that you can't bowl on. It's Jimmy Anderson might bowl on forever. But generally what we do see, especially with pace, is that pace is a bit more like what you see perhaps in something like football where towards the end of your 20s, early 30s, you're probably struggling to be able to keep that pace, although we're much better at keeping fast bowlers quick now in a way that I suppose footballers now, you know, with sports science also have that ability. Um, with batters, if you have a look, Gary, I did a podcast um, uh, with uh, Amol uh, recently uh, about batters and their ages. The best players usually um, have a peak between the age of, you know, 28 to 32, whereas the, the thing that you're talking about 
um, is something that we see in very average talented batters. So their peaks are usually between 21 and 23, and then they can never really live up to it again. So I wonder if, and I wonder in that podcast whether that is more an athleticism-based thing, where that when their reflexes are at their absolute sharpest, um, they can overcome some of their other flaws, and then as they start to slow down even a little bit, um, uh, you know, bowlers get on top of them. I don't know if that's true. I'm, we're just trying to work out why that that trend exists. But fast bowlers, I think with a fast bowler, you generally want to pick them before they're ready rather than when they're ready for this reason, because you want to get the absolute most out of them. And there is a decline um, on that. But on batting, we're certainly not seeing that. That doesn't mean that Paul Sterling isn't a player who's in decline and there aren't other players who do that. I think there is because we've seen so many players bat very well into their 30s we think that that is a trend whereas in actual fact of course they're still professional athletes and by the time you get to 30 32 you know you've probably been in the system for 14 years um your hands quite often if you're a batter start to go and your back starts to go there's no real great remedy for either of those two things if that is a problem Will says, uh, what would you class as too slow of a strike rate in test cricket? Obviously, everyone has their own method, but what's the cutoff where they're just hurting the team? I don't think there is a cutoff where you're hurting the team. Uh, again, I think it was me and Amal did a study on this once around Pajara. If strike rate from one end affects the batter at the other end, and we couldn't find any uh, link between those two things at all. I I've said a lot that I, I kind of, what fast batters do in test cricket, and I'm talking about people with a strike rate over 70, is that they can change the direction of the game very, very quickly. If your strike rate is 60 or 40, I'm not sure that you have as much of an impact. Below 40 probably means that you're a limited player. But, you know, I think BJ Watling might have been below 40. He certainly had a fantastic career for a long period there. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think that's the death now. But I think if your strike rate's below 40, you have to be one of the world's best defensive players, which BJ Watling was, because... Uh, you can't rotate the strike and get off. So I'm less worried about strike rate and more worried about the fact that it's very hard for you. It's very hard to be a blocker in test cricket. And the reason it's very hard to be a blocker in test cricket is eventually Vernon Philander or Saranga Lakmal or um, Ben Stokes will produce a ball that is of a higher quality than you face in first-class cricket and you will probably nick it. Whereas if you're rotating the strike and putting pressure back onto the bowler, even if you're only scoring at you know a strike rate of 40, you have less chance of getting out. So I don't think there's any strike rate that hurts the team. In fact, I would say this, you're, especially if you're top four, you probably want your top four to bat as long as physically possible in each innings because in a back-to-back -back test series, you want to tire out the bowlers. So I would prefer someone to make 100 of 300 balls unless they're going to make 100 of 120 balls. And that is because I really want the bowlers to be as exhausted as possible to play the long game, which is exactly what Pajara has done twice in Australia. Uh, James says, conventional wisdom is that the best time for most athletes to focus on building strength and conditioning is in their off-season. But do elite cricketers really have an off-season uh, giving, touring, and franchising commitments? And if not, how do they address S&C needs? Yeah, look, it's tough. I think we see now that... I think a lot has been taken from tennis. We've seen some um, S&C people have come across from tennis, which is another sport that doesn't really have an off-season. And it's probably different than what you would see from, I don't know, a footballer or a baseballer or, you know, um, you know, one of those other sorts of sports that has a proper off-season. But you're right. It's a real issue, and it's something that they talk about a lot. I mean, you only have to look at county cricket. County cricketers talk about the fact that they really struggle to maintain their fitness during a season because all they're doing is playing cricket. You know, and that's probably the most 
over-cricketed um, section that any professionals have to play, I would say, still to this point, unless I'm uh, misremembering someone else. So, yeah, I, I think it is a big problem, but they have yeah started to look at tennis a little bit from that point of view. But also players are now getting a little bit smarter. I don't think we're seeing as many... I mean, Dwayne Bravo probably got as much out of his career as he could have. Kyron Pollard hasn't, right? And part of the reason is that Kyron Pollard was playing too much cricket for someone of his frame. I mean, he's a massive man. Um, and, and he was playing too much cricket. And I wonder if the next Kyron Pollards will maybe look at that and go, can we play slightly less cricket, still maximize our earning, but make sure that we look after our, our knees, for instance, or our you know fitness, as you say, or your strength or whatever that may be. Um, but I did see, I did see the West Indians are quite often pioneers in all this. I did see some of the West Indians, you know, traveling with strength and conditioning, personal people, um, and, you know, and dietitians and all sorts of things. You know, so they are starting to think about how they deal with it on an individual basis, not just on a team level. Uh, Christopher says, how much has cricket infiltrated the English languages? Phases such as end of play and stumped come from cricket. Yep. Is it superstar or megastar comes from cricket? Hat trick comes from cricket. Sticky wicket comes from cricket. Uh, caught out comes from cricket. It's huge. Um, I did this. I was on um, Jim Jeffries' podcast ages ago. And I came up with a list of about 15 phrases. And, you know, Jim Jeffries is obviously Australian, but his co-hosts uh, were Americans. And they knew the majority of the of the phrases and had, you know, had used them or heard other people use them. Which does tell you how much it is involved in, in the language. But, yeah, I, I think off the top of my head, there's about 10 to 15 really key phrases that are that come completely from cricket. But then, you know, so for, for those who don't know, a hat trick, you know, is now fairly well-known sporting term around the world um that came from in the old days if you took three wickets and three balls they would literally take their hats off and go around the ground and they would collect money for you i can't remember if it's superstar or megastar i think it's megastar which is used for one of the earlier england cricketers um and that becomes a you know a phrase that i mean who would know that's a cricket phrase now so yeah, yeah cricket has a huge impact on the english language Madden says, if someone averages 50-plus with the bat and low 20s with the ball, um, does that make them a goat easily? Um, well, I don't think anyone's ever done that. So, yes, um, those are those are the equivalent of that's an all-rounder version of Bradman, right? So, Sobers averages mid-30s, Callis averages mid-low uh, 30s. Um, no player's ever averaged over 40 with the bat and under 30 with the ball, um, although, you know, uh, other than Aubrey Faulkner, of course drinking game but Ravi Dadej is not that far away from that so he might be another potential player but it tells you how hard it is and how it's never happened before so certainly no one's ever got over and Aubrey yeah, Faulkner he would have ended up with a bowling average under 30 if he played a lot more cricket I think his batting average is probably 40 to 45 is probably his absolute peak um he was a very very good batter but you know you listen to himself talk about his batting it, it felt like he was very much someone who he was he was a cricket coach of course a great cricket coach he got that the most out of his batting, um, I think. Whereas his bowling, because he was so good at bowling, leg spin and wrong, and, and it was still quite an early phase, I just don't think he ever would have averaged over 30 with the ball, even if he was very late to leg spin. Um, so it just tells you how hard this is, you know, to find a player with those two skills. Then you've just got the basic things. If, if you average over 50, it affects your batting, it affects your bowling and your batting. So, you know, Sobers has to bat down the order. Callis doesn't bowl many overs. 
Callis starts to get quite stiff towards the end of his career and doesn't really bowl that much at all. Sobers probably, we didn't see him as a peak bat or batter or bowler because of the amount of extra bowling he had to do of, of spin, which he wasn't particularly good at, but they needed a, you know, secondary spinner in some of those teams, third spinner in some of those teams. It's really hard to be able to do that sort of stuff. All right. Last one from Patreon. Josh says, saw an article saying, is Shodi has changed his run up? Thoughts as a fellow league spinner. I haven't seen this um, at all. I'll have to look into it, Josh. I, I must have missed that. I think Ishodi is really interesting because mid-career, he play he he becomes like a player development officer for Rajasthan Royals. And I thought, oh, he's coming to the end. And then you look up his age and he was like 27. So Ishodi, for those who don't know, Ishodi is one of the most popular players on the tour. I've never heard a bad word about him. In fact, the thing I hear the most is you've got to talk to Ishodi. You become best friends with Ishodi. Um, he's got a, a, um, a photographic memory when it comes to player stats. Um, and I should get him on the podcast actually, but, um, I, I wish all success for Shodi because partly because he is a little bit more of a club style leg spinner, right? Like if you compare him to like Zampa, um, you know, Rashid Khan, you know, uh, these sorts of, um, players, you know, they're a little bit more polished and what they do is a little bit more modern leg spin. And then you watch, um, Ishodi and there's a little bit of just comes in and rips it. Um, it could go anywhere. He doesn't always control line and length. I, 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 I wish him all the success in the world because I think he's a fantastic player. But if he has changed his run-up, I would assume, and I'm trying to think back to his old run-up in my mind at the moment, but I would assume he probably wants more momentum through the crease. And that is probably one of the reasons he may have struggled to, you know, um, he may be a little bit slow at international cricket at times. So it wouldn't surprise me if he was trying to get through the crease a little bit quicker and smoother um, in order to still put the same amount of revolutions on the ball, but for it to come through a little bit faster. Um, that's certainly been a trend. You know, Matt Parkinson is a perfect example of, you know, someone everyone just thinks is too slow. Even Adil Rashid has struggled to play in the IPL, right? Because people think he's a bit too slow. If you want to bowl, especially in India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, where there's a lot of leagues, um, I think you do need to be a little bit quicker through the crease if you're a wrist spinner. All right, that's the end of the Patreon questions. Sorry if I just banged the microphone there, everyone. Uh, why don't we take a quick break? And then there were some really good uh, questions in the chat. Remember, if you want to super chat me, uh, feel free. And uh, I will be back in one minute's time to answer what's going on in the YouTube comments. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. All right. Uh, welcome back. Uh, let's get to the comments here. Uh, super chat from Roy. Thanks, Roy. Hey, Jared, please discuss Bangladesh's new approach to white ball cricket. Well, I did on two days ago, Roy. <laughs> um, thank you very much for the question, but I, I, I went deep into it. But I've also got a podcast coming out with Mohammed Issam, which is all about it. Um, I think it's fascinating uh, what they're doing at the moment. There's so many different elements to it. So it's a really good podcast. So t definitely check that out. But basically what we talk about is that you look at someone like Mahidi Hassan, who has upgraded his skill level. So that he's, if he's not an all-rounder, he's like, you know, definitely a bowler who can bat a bit now. Uh, you then look at someone like um, Shanto, another drinking game, um, who, you know, went from being one of the world's worst international batters to suddenly 
looking like he really belongs at this level. Rudoy is a whole different version of player that we, I, I'd argue, we maybe have never even seen from Bangladesh. Proper a, a natural attacker. attacker. Then you've got Roni, um, who, you know, has this middling career, wouldn't have even been picked in previous uh, points of Bangladesh cricket. Suddenly, out of nowhere, he is um, back and attacking at the top. I don't think he's going to have a long career, but even that he exists at all, I think, is very, very um, interesting from that perspective. Uh, Lytton Das has obviously made the most out of himself. You've got the two different captains who may not like each other, but seem to like the two roles that they have uh, with each of their jobs. Um, what else do we have? Uh, uh, you know, Eberdot coming through, Taskin uh, coming up. So some of it is a lot of players getting better, but then there's there's clearly a, a different mindset to the way that they've been playing in white ball cricket and one-day cricket and T20 cricket. We have to see it happen a lot more away from home. It's a really interesting two World Cups coming up for them. Both of them should have pitches that can help them at times. They are not going to, they're going to have a mixture of youth and experience, which, you know, World Cup's probably fairly decent way to go about it. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about them. In fact, you are more excited because you asked another super chat, Roy, about them. Uh, do you think Linton Dust is becoming one of the best uh, batters of current times? I mean, he's certainly been one of the best players in the last few years. I'd have to have a look at where he bats in the order. You know, there's my, you know, to whether he gets a bit of a Jadeja bump. Anyone who's not facing the new ball at the moment, who does have that ability to bat middle order, if they can bat, certainly have better numbers at the moment. And so I'd have to go through Lytton to have a look at that. But look, I named him the most improved player in Test cricket. You know, for me, um, I didn't go into that. He wasn't one of the names I went into thinking he would win that award. I, I certainly had him on my list. But it was incredible for me to go through and do a deep dive analysis into Lytton Dust and just realize how much of a better cricket hit, cricketer he was than before. And you've also asked, um, uh, do you think he'll become a regular in the KKR first 11? The KKR thing's really random for me because, it, let's be honest, he was picked probably uh, on the fact that, you know, uh, he, he, he speaks Bangla, um, which is a big advantage, as we've seen before. They've gone after Bangladeshi players before. And he made those runs against India. There's not a lot in his T20 record to suggest that he's an IPL player right at the moment. However, he can keep and he can bat, so he gives you a bit of flexibility there. And I just think he's a better player now than he's ever been before. If, if they're seeing, if they're seeing some, what I'm seeing, you know, with the most improved player, and maybe they're not seeing those numbers quite come through in T20 cricket at the moment. I mean, he had a horrendous series against England. But when he did make runs, he looked magnificent again. Um, look, I'm a massive fan of Lytton Das. I think he's a thorough professional. Um, I really hope that he does have um, a lot of success with his game. Um, and I hope he's a successful IPL player. But I do st stress at the moment, I do think it's more of a hopeful pick than it is a pick based on him being ready. Sega says, how can India still have um, a number four problem in ODIs? Why is it so hard to find a number four player? Is that position harder to bat in ODIs than in other positions? No, a T20 is probably the hardest. I think they probably have number fours in their lineup. I think Kyle Rahul could probably bat number four. I think Virat Kohli could probably bat number four. I suppose Rishabh Pant might bat there again. So I think they have those kinds of players. Shreyas Iyer could probably play there again. I don't know how well he'd do outside of Asia, but I think they have those players available to them. So it's probably been a bit of a a fluke nature that they have, you know, that everyone has failed in that position because I don't think there's a, a problem with that. But yeah, number four generally the hardest position to play. Um, number four is in T20 cricket, and it's because you usually come in at the end of the power play 
Um, and then you go from facing the end of the power play where you can't really attack because two wickets have gone down. Um, and then you face, and then you've got to face the best spinner probably coming on for the seventh over now with the field out and you're not quite set yet. So generally number four is hardest to play in T20 cricket and make sure numbers look terrible. I've done a video on that one as well. If you want to go have a look at it, but great question, Sega. And thanks for the super chat. Bailey says, I'm currently a grad student studying pure mathematics. If I wanted a career in cricket analysis, post-studies, how should I go about it? Look, the very basic thing, and I always tell everyone this, you want to start with finding out things that cricket teams don't know. I would suggest going and having a look at as much information that you can scrape off the internet, uh, whether it be Hawkeye data, ball by ball data, whatever you can find, cheat, steal, borrow, um, you know, get that information um, and then start to put together arguments why teams are getting things wrong. Contact teams, contact coaches, contact general managers, contact owners, all these sorts of things. A lot of people have built careers off the back of that sort of stuff, you know, and send it to people. You know, if you've found something that you think that I've never covered before, you know, feel free to send it through to me. I might disagree or I might not understand it, but that's kind of what, you know, people have to do. Um, you know, we've certainly seen, I think we're, we've, the majority of the analysts Maybe not the majority. There is a big percentage of analysts who have got known for writing stuff on, you know, websites, blogs, LinkedIn, whatever it may be, sharing their analysis out there, tagging people directly, showing them what they can do. Um, there is a career to be made from that. You won't get paid much money, but hey, welcome to the show. Drew Goss says, curious to know if there exists a modern cricket equivalent of baseball. Um, Shohai Otani, uh, Ravi Jadeja. That's the easiest question I'm going to get today. It's interesting. Shohei Itani is an all-rounder in baseball, and they haven't had an all-rounder really in, well, 50 or 60 years, but you can argue Babe Ruth was one of the last great all-rounders that they had. Um, he was pretty old. Um, he's been dead for a long time. So, look, Otani is an all-rounder. I've done a whole episode on Otani uh, with, was it Ben Miller? Ben Lindbergh? Yeah, Sam Miller and Ben Lindbergh. Sorry. They both wrote a book together and it's completely warped my brain. Um, but yeah, I did a book, I did a whole podcast with Ben where we talked about, um, Otani and why baseball hasn't had as many all rounders as my cricket has. It's really interesting. It's worth going and having a look at that. Um, so from that perspective, we, you know, Judasia would be the obvious answer. You could put Ben Stokes in there if you wanted to, Jason Holder. Um, I would have thought that on numbers and I don't know, I haven't looked at Otani's numbers after I've done that piece. I haven't really gone back in, but. I would have thought that, yeah, Ravid numbers probably translate to something more like what Otani's done. Um, although maybe peak Imran Khan, and I might have compared him to, I might have done a video where I compare Otani to peak Imran Khan, actually. Um, Keith Miller was another one as well. So we've had Otani's before. Baseball hasn't, which is, I think, a very, very fascinating thing. DM95 says, thoughts on Smith versus Cummins captaincy debate. Feels like there's a lot of recency bias and revisionism about how good of a captain Smith was in the first place. Yeah. I, I'm, thank you. I'm shocked that everyone's suddenly like, oh, Smith, he was a good captain. No one thought he was a good captain the first time he captained. Look, I think Cummins is a different kind of captain and he's probably not as proactive. And bowling captains can tend to be like that because they kind of trust bowlers to get the job done. Whereas batting captains are like, oh, this isn't working. Well, let's try this. And so we generally favor captains who make more changes than captains who don't change changes no one's ever said that guy's a great cap a ca great captain because you know he kept that field all day even if you know that was the field that eventually won them the game and i do think there's a way that we look about these things and 
Yeah, I, I do think there's a way that we look about these things that's just wrong when it comes to captaincy. And I think the Smith-Cummins debate is certainly part of that. I didn't think watching those test matches that Australia looked like a better team when Cummins wasn't there, other than the fact that his bowling probably wasn't much of an impact and Mitchell Stark's bowling was an upgrade in those conditions at that time. I didn't think that the captaincy was the big difference there. I mean, they got lucky on one pitch and then the next pitch was flat and they batted better. I'm not sure how Smith gets too much credit for those things. Unwish says, Bradman dominated his era and conditions more than anyone else. But should that be enough to call him the greatest ever? Like I'd imagine cricketing ability got uh like I'd imagine cricketing ability got tested much more fifty years on from this time. So there's a video I made about this Anwish. When you look at if you took Bradman from that period and put him in now, you would say, I don't think he would look special anymore. I don't think he'd be one of the leading batters anymore. Right? From from that perspective. But also you have to remember that the reason that modern cricket is so good. It's because so many people saw Bradman bat. He literally changed the way that batting was done. He took it from, it was very much, it was very much a lot of batting, especially English batting was, you know, amateurs um, having a bit of a laugh. Bradman never laughed. He was the most dour person of all time. All he wanted to do was make his next run. And he turned that into an art form in a way that modern professional batting has become, right? The use of his feet, the way he hit to his areas, the way he kept the ball on the ground, uh, the way he ran between wickets, all of this is what modern cricket is built on. So it's a bit like saying that Bill Russell, uh, to use a basketballer, or Pelé wouldn't have the same impact if they played now. It's probably true. Right, Bill Russell is a six foot nine center. You watch the old footage of him; he was still a foot taller than everyone else on the court, right? And with a great leap. There are lots of six foot nine guys with a great leap. The average height in the NBA now is like six foot seven, right? So Bill Russell would not have stood out in the same way had he played in this era. He still would have been a fantastic player because he was, you know, above and above average talent in so many different things. He would have been a fantastic player, but he wouldn't have had the same impact. But Bill Russell changed the way that centers played. You can't look at the modern game and pretend that Bill Russell doesn't have an impact on on, on the way that modern players play. You know, it, the shot blocking, the, the athletic shot blocking um, side of things, the way that he would turn rebounding into fast breaks, that's all Bill Russell, right? And the same with, you know, some of the other players of that era. Now, Bill Russell was playing against six foot three white guys a lot of the time who weren't athletic, who played a different form of basketball, Right. And Don Bradman was playing against a lot of amateurs. He was a professional, really, when a lot of other people obviously were not. Even England cricketers who were called professionals were not always, you know, fully professional in the off-season. So there is a huge amount of difference. And the amount of public scrutiny that Sachin Dendulka had to go through, which, oh, to be fair, Bradman had a lot of public scrutiny, but he didn't have the 24-hour news cycle. He didn't have, you know, cable TV. They couldn't watch every mistake he made, all these sorts of things. There's a huge difference with all of that. That said... There probably wasn't, I mean, we mentioned Babe Ruth once, let's go for him again. There probably weren't many athletes on the planet who got as much round-the-clock coverage and um, pressure as what Bradman got in his era. He then also had to play before and after a world war. After the world war, we, we don't know if this is 100% true, but it seems like his eyesight wasn't as good after the World War, and yet he still averages over 100 in that period after World War II. When he was, what, late 30s, early 40s, whatever his age was at that point, we perhaps missed peak Bradman batting years in, in, in all of this. 
right? But here's the most important thing. He wasn't tested as much as modern cricketers are. There's no doubt about that. But he was 40% better than other players. When you could start, Anwesh, to show me players who are 40% better than the next best great player of their era, I'm more than happy to say, maybe we over overrate Bradman. But he was 40% better than other greats in his era. What are we talking about here? That just hasn't happened before. And it hasn't happened since. He was just that much better. And it's the same as WG Grace, right? WG Grace wouldn't... WG Grace would struggle to average 30 in club cricket now. However, WG Grace once made more hundreds in a summer than the rest of English professional cricket combined. You have to, at a certain point, accept that you can only go up against the era that you're in. That's all we could compare these people um, for. We could still we could say Sid Barnes is great, and then we can break down his numbers and go, look, how good would he have been in another era? There's no way to break Bradman's numbers up and not think he would have been fantastic in other eras as well, or had he been tested in, in other places. You know, he was just an absolutely next-level player from that perspective. And he wasn't tested the way that other players were. But to be fair, Virat Kohli isn't tested on sticky wickets either. Virat Kohli doesn't know what it's like to be on a, a boat for months on end. Virat Kohli doesn't have to stop in the peak of his career because a world war is breaking out. There are plenty of other ways. I mean, a, a, Don Bradman was the poster child for Australia getting through the Depression. It was him and a horse that got poisoned in America, right? And... I think he got poisoned. Well, he died anyway. And it was a New Zealand horse. It's a very weird story. But essentially, Don Bradman was the poster child for Australia, you know, becoming what they became. He was a huge person, you know, talking about him getting, you know, special treatment in the army and, you know, the stock market job that he got that he shouldn't have got and all this sort of stuff. It was a very, very, you know, there was pressure on him. Um, and yet he managed to average 40% more than the next greatest player of his era. Fuck me. Are we really still arguing about this? If he played now, I don't think he's a great. That's how sport goes. Sport evolves. Jesse Owens wouldn't win a gold medal now, right? And Jesse Owens was absolutely fantastic. Jack Johnson probably would get the shit punched out of him by some of these YouTubers, perhaps, let alone professional boxers. We understand that, right? Sport has evolved. People have got faster, stronger, taller, smarter, Better diets, all these sorts of things, you know. Uh, we watched The Last Dance. We see Michael Jordan, um, you know, on um, on um, cigars every five minutes. You know, modern players come off the court and get IV drip, right? Things have changed. We understand that. But what would some of those older players been like if they'd had those advantages as well? You have to, all you can do is go up against the best players in your era. And if in the case like Bradman, you are that much better than the best players in your era, it is. It would be stupid to say. Let, let's let's pick up. Ian Bell might be a better batter than Don Bradman, right? I'm picking someone from the last twenty five years, a very good player, but not an all time great. Not even an England all time great. But he might be a better batter than what Bradman ever was. But that's because of what Bradman built. That's because of how cricket evolved. That's because of professionalism. That's because of changes. That's because of, we threw away the MCC manual, which, to be fair, Bradman almost tore up on his own. Said, this doesn't make any sense, this. This is how I'm going to bat, and it's going to look a little bit weird. It's going to, you know, be like a Steve Smith-style technique. We have to, at a certain point, just go, oh, my God, this guy was so much better than everyone else that he played against. And, and I find it really interesting that the arguments are against that. What are we talking about? Bradman can't be better than 
plays he hasn't played against. He can only be better against than the plays he played up against. And as I've said before, the absolute gold standard of cricket in the era that Don Bradman played was England, and he averaged high 80s against them. Come on. What are we doing here? And I don't even like Bradman. I don't like him as a person. I didn't like some of the attitude. I didn't like the way he treated some of his teammates. I'm not even a Bradman person. But if you were talking about numbers, right, at a certain point, and you're talking about the quality that he put up, no one else has managed to do that. And that's not, it's not an accident, right? That's just not an accident. AJ says, could you do a Reddit uh, q and I've done hundreds of, um, well, not hundreds, maybe 10 or 20 um, on there. Yeah, I mean, I, I did them back in the old days, and then I, do, I just don't use Reddit as much. I used to, you know, at least turn up there every now and again, and it's still really good for some of the headlines for my videos. I think Redditors think a lot more like I do than probably newspaper writers do sometimes. Um, so from that perspective, and, and, you know, if there's something interesting on Reddit, I will pop over there and have a look at it uh, occasionally, but I don't really ever. I never really went on the match day Reddits. They confused me. Um, I could never follow along. You know, you miss the first in joke and you miss the 20th in joke and, uh, you know, it doesn't work for you. But I did like going there and doing the um, Q&As, but now I do Q&As on Patreon. And, you know, it helps me build my uh, everything that I'm trying to do. Uh, I do one Q&A a month over on Patreon. Uh, if you want to sign up, it's what whatever the price is, two US dollars, two pounds. I don't even know. Um, at the minimum, you can get access to the Q&As there. Very similar audience to Reddit as well. Um, you know, very smart audience. I always like the, the Reddit audience. Um, uh, love doing Q&As over there, but there's only so many hours in the day. Hypercost, the great Hypercost says, should the ICC run their own fair break style tournament, giving the best associate men's and women's players a greater platform? Yes, if the I- ICC was doing things correctly, they would do that. I kind of think that eventually someone will do this from the outside and probably do it better than the ICC anyway. You know, we had the Europe League and the Canadian League. They were, I suppose, at least steps towards that, even if they, they were run by the same group and it wasn't particularly well run. Um, but I do think we will see something like this. I think the problem with the ICC doing it is that the major teams don't want the ICC to spend money on stuff like this and the calendar, how that calendar works for the ICC. I can't see that happening. All right, I'll take another quick break. If you don't follow Hypercourse, by the way, follow Hypercourse. Uh, I'll take another quick break. Then after the break, I'll mop up what's left in the chat room. All right, welcome back to Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber. Let's us finish up this chat uh, again. I, I think the questions are getting better and better from Patreon and uh, in YouTube and, and everything else. So thank you to everyone for sending them in. Uh, we've got a couple more and we'll finish up. Adityan says, can you tell me more about pace of foot marks not necessarily helping spinners? I think what you're talking about is, is the theory that um, off spinners are helped by left arm seam bowlers. So foot marks can help left arm finger spinners and wrist spinners when they're bowling to left handers. Uh, towards the end of games. I think that's fair. But the reason for this is you generally have two, three, four, maybe five or six uh, right arm seam bowlers in any test match roughing it up. That's a lot of people all running through the same area, dusting up that area, which means you have a big area to to aim at and it's probably well dug in. That means weird things can happen out of those foot marks. If you're an off spinner and you've got a left armer, you probably only have one or two at very most left armers available to you. They are not going to make the same kind of um, tread marks on those sorts of pitches. It's not going to be as big. It's not going to be as deep. In the case of someone like Mitchell Stark, who's a bit of a light stepper, you know, it, maybe if you had Dirk Nannis in your team with big old heavy foot Dirk Nannis, I'm trying to think of Brett Schultz, perhaps, um, those sorts of bowlers, Wahab Riaz maybe as well, they probably dig it up a little bit more. But, you know, 
you would need two or three probably heavy steppers to make up for the four or five um, on on the other side of the wicket. So I th- there's always been this theory that off spinners do better when left arm fi- uh, left arm pace bowlers are in their team. We couldn't find any. Uh, I think it was me and Amol might have done that, but I've done it a couple of times actually. I've looked this up a couple of times. I'm more than happy to be wrong and have someone like you know, Himanish or um, Kartikeya um, have a deep dive of it. But I haven't f- found anything that suggests that having a left arm bowler in your side is worth having if you have an off spinner to pair them up with. There's nothing that suggests this. And it's really just because you don't have enough left arm bowlers to do the damage. And even with the footmarks, I think what happens with footmarks, as someone who, who works in cricket and has dealt with teams, the two things that I think teams get overly obsessed with are wind direction and short boundaries and foot marks. As someone who played club cricket, you know, you see you'll have a short boundary on one side of the ground and like everyone will put all their fielders there. I would instantly try and hit everything to the other side of the ground because there's no one out there. And I could score almost two runs a ball anywhere I want um, on that other side of the ground now. And and I've seen T20 teams do similar things um, than this. And I've seen guys go out because they're just trying to hit everything to the short boundary when actually they could just hit it to the normal size boundary uh, and it was a perfect ball to hit there. The other one is foot marks, where you see spinners get absolutely obsessed by foot marks over and over again, whereas actually perhaps their best ball on this pitch is just aiming it at the stumps normally. There are pitches where that's not the case, where foot marks are your only option, and I get that, but I think too often I've seen bowlers just waste their time bowling into the foot mark. So I do have a bit of a thing with foot marks in general, but I still believed in the left arm um, off-spin thing until I looked up the numbers and... There's nothing to suggest that. Success Failure says um, international cricket isn't as important anymore. He's talking about the video I put up today, um, if you're listening to this video or in a couple of days if you're listening to the podcast. So will the stats of teams, ICC ranking matter anymore? Individual stats, Boomerang without playing is ranked high. So, I mean, ICC rankings don't matter as much. So they're already a bit of a silly construct, of course, because of the way we play cricket. But I was think- I've been thinking about, especially... Let's go with team rankings first. You come into a World Cup now, and it's a bit like football where there's always like, I don't know, Belgium or the USA have a really good uh, ranking uh, when it comes to those tournaments. And they're not particularly living up to those rankings inside those major tournaments. I think we'll see that start to happen more in cricket. Individual player rankings are already nonsense. Uh, especially for T20 cricket. I'm not even sure what the point of having it in. You know, my, my friend Tabri Shamsi, I'm very glad that he's the number one ranked T20 international bowler in the world because I like him. But come on now. Some of the players who get to number one rankings, I did a video on David Milan if you want to have a look at it. It's ridiculous that he was number one ranked batter in T20 cricket in the world. Couldn't get off the bench in the IPL. So yeah, look, I think that will happen. I think we'll start to look at that. Um, you know, you're still, when you're playing the top six teams specifically, so I'd throw Sri Lanka in and, and Bangladesh is not far away at the moment. You, when you're playing against those teams, I still think you're playing fairly good quality teams a lot. And so, you know, I'm less worried about those, that level being so far off. But so we know that sort of the top end, the top four or five teams it's probably a, when they play each other, especially at World Cups, that's a much better quality than the IPL. But a lot of the rest of the international cricket, the PSL, the IPL, you know, perhaps even the 100 at times is stronger than that. And so I think that's a very fair, um, and that's already started to happen. So that will happen only more and more, I would have thought, as we go towards global leagues being, you know, uh, the new thing. Q says, uh, will you ever do a video on Kyle Mayers? I have, Q. Go and find it. 
That was an easy one. Yeah, uh, look, I, I've been fascinated about him since he started. You're talking about a guy who made a testable 100 to win a test match, despite the fact he'd never been a good batter before. Now he's in the side as a medium pace bowler um, and regularly takes wickets and doesn't really make runs anymore. He's a fat, stupidly weird cricketer, and they, they're my kind of guys. Super chat from Nagenda, who says, who will win the IPL 2023 prediction? So I, I haven't even looked at it from that perspective. I haven't really thought about it. I'm working on a lot of videos about it, but this sort of thing, I, until I've done the first power list, which will probably be what, two weeks into the season, it's just not even a thought. It's just, it's not really how I do these things. And it's, it's, of course, the question you get asked the most, you know, a World Cup comes up or the IPL comes up or, you know, the Ashes comes up and everyone's like, well, what's your prediction? I'm like, um, I don't know, Australia, um, India, Delhi. I just don't, it's not how I work. And if you come on this channel, you realize it's not the sort of stuff I make. But thank you very much for the super chat. Nagenda, I think I said Nagenda the first time. Raj Ryder, I think it is, says, why is it the white ball disintegrates quickly? And what can you think can be done to develop a new ball and bring back reverse swing in ODIs? Can the pink ball be used? I do think the pink ball should be used in one day cricket. Uh, the white ball cannot be dyed. So red, it can be dyed with a red ball and it can't be dyed with a white ball. And so it's painted on. Paint chips off. Once the paint chips off, the entire ball gets soft. There's nothing they can do to stop that. They've tried everything. It just, it doesn't work. So the pink ball, I think, should be used in one-day cricket. I'm not really sure why we don't use it. I know the white ball is slightly easier to see. It may have something to do with the fact that the pink ball is still hard to see um, when you're fielding. So it might have something to do with, you know, not wanting to go towards that. But the pink ball is a much better ball. Um, I would certainly use that. I mean, the pink ball is not great either. It gets soft around 50, 55 overs, and sometimes can be 40, 45 overs. But at least then you'd only need one ball, and you would bring back reverse, and it's probably a better option. That If I was doing a shortcut, thing i would do that but if you want to know my real answer i wrote years ago that research and development on cricket balls is pitiful and i feel sorry for kookaburra and dukes and sg for you know them getting slammed when they're just small companies um trying to do these things and they've made mistakes don't get me wrong dukes had a big error recently and uh, kookaburra balls were terrible and sg probably could improve as well but these small companies really a proper a billion dollar sport should be pumping 10 and 20 million dollars i mean I would even go as far as if the sport was run properly, I would buy Dukes, SG and Kookaburra if I was the ICC. Th that is what baseball has done with, I've got the name of the baseballs, Rawlings, um, I think. Uh, that is what I would do. And that's how I would, um, I would try. And then I would put research and development in it, get the balls I want perfectly for everyone and take the best things that SG have and the best things that Kookaburra have and the best thing that Dukes does and, and go about doing that, set up a huge factory somewhere um and bring all the experts in and pay them all uh, what they should be um you know do live tests with professional cricketers at the moment kookaburra does the majority of their tests with cricket balls um in australia and that australia is the least likely place to test a kookaburra ball being that there is no other conditions really that are that similar to australia maybe a little bit of south africa no one else is anything like australia so why are we testing cricket balls that are going to be used in Asia, what, 40% of the time, they're going to be used in English and New Zealand conditions in Australia. It doesn't make any sense. Cultura Free says, how dare he say Ian Bell is not a great, I'm friends with Belly, so please don't send this to him. I, I think he was a fantastic player. And uh, as I once wrote, I would certainly put him um, naked in a birdcage, oiled up, playing a cover drive. I think if you don't say playing in a cover drive, that's weird. But now I've said playing in a, playing a cover drive and it still sounds weird. Jaco says, have you heard of any fan-owned professional cricket teams? No. 
Um, I tried to get this up, Jaco, when the Hong Kong, what was the Hong Kong T20 League called? The Blitz? Feels like Hong Kong Blitz. That sounds right. When the Hong Kong Blitz was played, I th- looked into doing a, um, a um, Kickstarter campaign, but I could get enough money to buy into the ownership. My problem was like kind of where we took it from there and how much money we could continue to get after that first year. And I also didn't want to be in a position where I couldn't afford to pay the players what I needed to pay them. Uh, or not pay staff, everyone. Do you know, I didn't, unless I could guarantee that we would have got, I don't know what we would have needed, forty or $50,000 that, for that year. Maybe even less than that. But I just think that we would have struggled to be able to do that. And because of that, uh, it didn't work. I still really want to do this going ahead. I haven't found another league that is ideal that would allow me to do it. The Hong Kong Blitz was a really, really interesting one. It's a shame that it hasn't lasted. Um, I suppose Fair Break is the next obvious one. And I would like to do something like that perhaps again. But yeah, as it currently stands, I'm not aware of any. SBI says, with home um, teams preparing pitches that favours them, should teams away be allowed to choose whether to bat or bowl and get rid of the toss? So they tried this in county cricket. I haven't done enough research on it to see why they thought it didn't work. I would have thought this is, in modern day cricket, modern sport makes a lot more sense than what we've done traditionally. But it it doesn't feel like anyone is, there's a massive movement towards this. But I'd be interested to see if in 10, 15, 20 years time, if this is something that happens again. And the last one, Rudresh, I can't even say it, Rudresh Warren. I think I've got that right. Probably not pronouncing it right, but at least I got the letters right in the end. Um, says, what would explain Tendulkar's resurgence from 2007 to 2010-11 after a couple of years of being not as good and injured so late in his career? I would have to have a look at the numbers. I thought he was decent in those last few years, but he wasn't, he wasn't exceptional. What age does is it robs you of your consistency. It doesn't rob, rob you of individual peaks. My memory is he averages 30 or 40 over the last few years. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I only happened to look this up recently. So, you know, we're trying to look at our greatest batters of all time um, thing. So, uh, it, you know, we've been looking at players like Tendulkar. You know, players like Tendulkar and Bradman are really good to compare other players to to understand, uh, you know, what the true GOAT level sort of um, is. Um, but the one only other thing I would say is just based on the years that you've just put up on the screen, my memory is that those are exceptionally good batting years um, around the world and that it is possible that he ran into a period where it was a little bit easier to bat. I would have thought that, yeah, no, though I'd have to go back and have a look at the numbers, but there's a couple of years where top order players averaged over 40 and I think some of them might be in that period, but I'm just going off the top of my head there. But those things really, really matter. But he certainly wasn't the same player in that period as he had been before. Anyway, cracking show, everyone. Uh, I want to thank you all for um, sending your questions in via Patreon. Remember, like, subscribe, support. All those things help us to do this. You know, uh, the more people we get, the more intelligent questions that usually come through as well. So, you know, it it helps us uh, to be able to do this. But thank you all for your support again. I will be – this one, we did this a little bit earlier uh, because I'm traveling out to Australia, uh, for a little while and I uh, won't be around on Thursday. Um, but next time, uh, wagon wheel, uh, wagon wheel, what am I doing? Uncovered will be from Australia. And so Min Barat will be in the same time zone. So we might be able to actually get him on a show, but there's some great stuff. I've got a video on Harman Prick coming out. There's obviously the one about international cricket that came out today. And to start our IPL coverage, we, that will start on Monday. 
and I have a video about scoops and ramps or scoops and ramps whatever you want to call it, that shot where you do the thing, which I think is really, really cool. Um, I'm really excited about that. The Hummerprint one's really good as well. So huge shout out and thank you to everyone uh, for coming on this chat. And I will be around again very shortly. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Podcast Network.